For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Governor Stitt is pulling ads after concerns from prosecutors and a bipartisan group of lawmakers. The ads feature Stitt and Attorney General John O'Connor, who is himself seeking re-election. State law prohibits a candidate contributing more than $2,900 on another candidate, and the ads cost the state campaign $340,000. The battle appears to have caused quite a rift in the Republican Party. Neva, what's going on here? <laughs> well, I think, uh, uh, first of all, we've got competing uh, legal opinions. I mean, it started <laughs> out and the, uh, uh, the governor's campaign basically said that they had uh, legal legal counsel that uh, said that it was fine and then a day later they announced that they would halt the ads given the fact that uh, as you say Michael there was this letter from the lawmakers and a former general counsel to the party and then there was the comment from uh, Oklahoma County District Attorney David Prater mm -hmm. that he would delve deeper into the matter so I think they put this put the uh, halt on all of that. But in the aftermath, you had the new state Republican chair who mm -hmm. uh, said that he fired uh, the uh, general counsel uh, and the Rex general... Rex Duncan, a former state lawmaker. Huh? Former state lawmaker and uh, uh, Colonel Rex Duncan. Mm -hmm. And uh, then you had this kind of give and take exchange where, you know, uh, Duncan came back, you know, very strongly and said, look, uh, uh, I've not resigned as general counsel. The rules of the party say that uh, they don't authorize the chairman to remove the general counsel once confirmed by the Republican state committee. So he basically says, okay, uh, the new chairman can ignore me, but he can't replace me. So now <laughs> now the big question among everybody is, uh, who's the general counsel? So uh, again, inter-party politics, uh, stuff that the average uh, uh, Oklahoma voter doesn't pay much attention to, and frankly, many Republican Republicans don't pay much attention to, but it does uh, build this backdrop in the in the end of this political primary season of what the fallout's going to be mm -hmm. long term. So um, a lot of a lot of give and take. I think the uh, the upshot was it was a quick resolution on the question with the ad and uh, whether people agree or disagree that it could have stayed on or should have come out off. Uh, I think that uh, it, uh, it, it certainly was something that caught a lot of people by surprise. Ryan. Well, and there still remains the question of whether or not this is going to be considered an illegal contribution by the Kevin Stitt campaign to the Attorney General John O'Connor campaign. I mean, if that's that question still remains, and that's a question for the State Ethics Commission. That's a question for uh, potentially the Oklahoma County District Attorney David Prater, who said that he's looking into this and looking into it at the request not just of, of Democrats uh, or even, you know, just fringe Republicans. I mean, you had, you know, mainstream kind of, you know, uh, leadership, uh, people mm -hmm. from both parties reaching out to David Prater, asking him to investigate what they called an illegal campaign contribution. That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're walking into a primary and you have an incumbent governor and members of his own party, um, not and again, not fringe members. These are these are uh, leaders in the party stepping up and saying we see a problem here. That's a, I mean, to me, that's that's the the bigger part of the story. When we get to Rex Duncan, uh, Rex Duncan saying this out loud. I mean, Rex Duncan is is a partisan uh, in in many respects. I served with Representative Duncan, uh, Colonel Duncan. Uh, he and I uh, rarely got along when it came to politics. Uh, but I, I do have a, a lot of respect for him. He's, he's a man of principle, uh, and he will stand by those principles. And, you know, I think that that's on display right now. Uh, when, when, he, when he digs in on something, he really digs in on it. And uh, he's not going to be bullied. If, 
you know, I'm not saying he's somebody who can't be persuaded or his mind can't be changed, but he's certainly not going to be bullied out of his position. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, woe be to everybody in the, the Republican establishment right now that's on the opposite side of Rex Duncan in this fight. You know, how this plays out, um, I don't think that any of this plays out, especially with regard to uh, a decision by the Ethics Commission or the District Attorney's Office in Oklahoma County before the June primary. Right. I don't, I don't oh, think yeah. we're, I don't think we're going to see anything by then. But it could be something that uh, has a resolution. And if it's a if it's a negative resolution for the governor's campaign, um, I mean, there are major implications there, uh, not just for the governor's staff, but potentially the governor personally as somebody that signed off on the ad. And that might come into play in November if there's a if there's some sort of outcome uh, that you know points in that direction. Well, you know, it's interesting too. A lot of the uh, give and take about Rex Duncan and whether he's been uh, fired or retained. I mean, and let's let's be clear, this has always been a voluntary uh, position as general counsel to the party. I mean, uh, in fact, the, the new Republican chairman, A.J. Ferrati, had uh, uh, more than 10 years uh, uh, serving in that same capacity as general counsel under previous uh, state chairs. But, mm-hmm. but the other element to this that some people have tried to infuse into this whole uh, this whole issue is the fact that Rex Duncan had been a thousand dollar contributor to the Drummond campaign, right. and uh, you know, yeah. obviously, the governor, uh, his handpicked uh, uh, attorney general, is John O'Connor running for election of first time uh, for a four year full four year term. So uh, whether all of that meshes into this thing or not is you know is certainly uh, something that the inside you know kind of the inside political crowd is talking about but as you say Ryan I think uh, the big issue is this wasn't an independent expenditure this wasn't uh, this wasn't a super PAC mm-hmm. this was a campaign with another candidate clearly in the in the in the commercial and that I think is something that needs to be resolved so no one has a question going forward whether it can or can't be done mm-hmm. a federal judge says Oklahoma's death penalty protocols are constitutional according to the ruling the state's three drug lethal injection doesn't violate the eighth amendment's protections against cruel and unusual punishment despite arguments to the contrary by death penalty opponents Ryan what are your thoughts on this ruling well, you know, of course, I'm, I'm disappointed in the, in the ruling. I think that um, the the very the very issue here, you know, is whether or not it creates a significant serious risk of of, of serious pain and suffering uh, during the execution. And the the real problem with that question and the way that it's framed and the way that I think the court uh, addressed this from a, a legal analysis uh, standpoint is that the drug that we're talking about is meant to is potentially masking that pain so you know the the idea that we can have certainty around something that is being disguised purposefully and without any sort of any other you know medical benefit or protocol benefit other than to potentially paralyze and disguise the pain that the condemned person is going through during the execution procedure um you know i i do think it's it's interesting thinking about what this might look like on appeal and you know to uh, you know think about what the tenth circuit could or could not do now, one of the things that uh, on, on appeal that will happen is that most of this uh, decision from Judge Friat is a finding of fact. And, mm-hmm. you know, the findings of fact, and he was he was very methodical in going through, you know, uh, a lot of evidence that was introduced in front of him uh, by the prosecution and the defense. One of the interesting things to me was how much weight he gave to Dr. Yen. 
Um, he said that the plaintiffs and the defendants on both sides uh, brought forth experts that he called kind of the the uh, the roadshow, you know, the roadshow of experts that they have testified in trials like this all around the country. He said the one fresh face in all of this is Dr. Yen, and he seemed to give a lot of credibility to Dr. Yen's accounts, not only of the executions prior to this trial, but the executions that happened during this trial, which to me has been the most astounding aspect of this entire piece of litigation altogether, is that the state executed plaintiffs in this litigation. Um, and I, I, I hate to think that that played a role in the outcome here, because if, if the outcome had been, wait a second, our execution protocol violates the Eighth Amendment, well, the state executed four people during the pendency of litigation that came to that conclusion. To me, that would have been a really, you know, I think that that would have been the just outcome, but it would have also raised questions about whether the state should have executed those four people to begin with. Um, you know, on appeal, the uh, Tenth Circuit is going to give a lot of deference to those findings of fact. Um, you know, it's, I, I wonder if they're going to be able to demonstrate if the uh, appellates would be able to demonstrate it was arbitrary for him to put that much weight on Dr. Yen simply because he was new mm -hmm. uh, to the testimony of experts in this. The conclusions of law that he makes uh, are, are pretty uh, straightforward. Uh, that's where the appellate court, I think, will have much more discretion to overturn this, either in part or in whole. I think it remains to be seen whether or not this is even appealed. I'd be surprised if it's not. Mm -hmm. But again, the findings, in fact, are going to have a great amount of deference in front of the Tenth Circuit. Neva. Well, and I think, I think the bottom line is that uh, uh, the decision was that this did fall in line with the requirements laid out by the U.S. Supreme Court. I think it now you know, clearly is moving forward. The attorney general has said that he's going to uh, uh, move on with the execution dates on death row inmates. And, and frankly, that list is long. I mean, it could, I think the number was there could be 28 executions over the next two years potentially. So, um, but it the, the long and the short of it is in Oklahoma, I think that we, as we've said many times on the show and talking about uh, uh, not only the death penalty, but this issue with the uh, uh, with the uh, what was being used uh, for the uh, uh, the drug uh, to execute that um, Oklahomans by and large are overwhelmingly supportive of the death penalty. A look at voter registration shows how much Republicans gained in newly drawn congressional districts. In CD5, the GOP registration gap saw an increase from 7% to 18%. The 3rd Congressional District in much of western Oklahoma has a 28-point advantage for Republicans, even though it now includes some Democratic neighborhoods of Oklahoma City. Neva, with these advantages, are Republicans a lock to hold on to all five congressional seats in November? Well, I think you have to look at history, uh, and certainly history over the last uh, 30 years, and say that uh, it is a very uh, bright prospect uh, that Republicans will continue to do well uh, at the at the particularly at the national level, as you see all that is uh, taking place, and you see poll numbers on. Uh, folks all the way from Biden down uh, into the congressional uh, and Senate races, that it is it is a climate where in Oklahoma, I uh, think they're very, very proud of the delegation, the Republicans that are that are in office now, many standing for um, uh, reelection. And of course, the open Senate seat that will bring us a new United States senator. But the other, the other component to this is, let's face it, Republican registration. Fifty-one percent of, mm -hmm. of of the state is now Republican registration. Thirty-one percent Democrat, and then of course the seventeen percent independents that kind of are in play that could go either either direction. So. 
Um, no election can be taken for granted, and I think uh, I think you see that with every race taking place right now in the primary. Uh, people are out campaigning, making sure that they are connecting with voters and doing the job they have to do as the candidate to get reelected. So, but in terms of when you look at the overall pattern and you look at the 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 notion that's always there as we every ten years do redistricting that somehow this is some you know uh, sinister attempt to gerrymander and do all of these bad things to just make sure you stack the deck the deck for one party it just hasn't it just hasn't uh, played itself out because it's just not true and that's why I think there's been no effort and no successful effort to try to overturn the new boundaries the new districts in court because it is a fair process it is a balanced process and uh, we'll see these folks now running in their in their new districts uh, in the primary on June 28th right. Well, and, and that's just it, though, is I, I think that by creating these, uh, you know, very uncompetitive two-party uh, races, what we end up with are, you know, uh, more and more elections that are decided. And, you know, we're looking here at congressional districts, but even the state legislative districts, more and more of these are decided in a primary. Um, you know, the, the handful of, you know, state seats that are considered safe Democratic seats, almost always decided in a primary. The, the vast majority of seats that are, you know, lean Republican or safe Republican, decided in primaries. Uh, you know, we don't really see very, very many competitive general election state legislative races. We certainly won't see uh, any, uh, and I'm, you know, I'll probably, you know, get, get some flack for saying this, but we probably won't see very many, if any, uh, competitive general elections for congressional races in the state mm-hmm. of Oklahoma, uh, not just this cycle, but for a very long time. You know, the, you know, I'm, I'm a Sooners fan, uh, but, uh, but I would never argue that the Sooners should walk into a game and they put 17 po- points up on the scoreboard before the game even starts. Um, you know, you know, and that's, you know, the Sooners, they're, they're usually an odds on favorite Republican candidates in the state of Oklahoma in most congressional seats, uh, if not, well, not all of them, but, you know, prior to this, at least in the fifth district, there was some competition. And I think we saw how exciting that was. I mean, we saw a real national dialogue uh, that was taking place. You know, voters were being contacted. Uh, I, of course, was, was rooting for Kendra Horn to win re-election, but it was a competitive race. Um, we're not going to see that uh, for at least 10 years in Oklahoma. Uh, just because Republicans have taken this opportunity to just uh, entrench themselves with a political tool. Now, uh, you know, is, is this, you know, turnabout's fair play? Did Democrats do the same thing? Yeah, probably. Uh, it, but I, I do think that it does a disservice to all of us. And, and frankly, you know, we've, we've heard a lot of talk over the years about having an independent uh, redistricting commission, taking the power away from politicians to draw their own seat, uh, to draw their own district boundaries. Uh, but I think that we really just need to go beyond that and really look at multi-member districts so that we have better representation throughout the state of Oklahoma and we don't have folks that are having to compete in these primary campaigns. And, you know, you know whether elected Republicans or candidates, uh, Republican candidates would say it out loud or not, I think that there's a recognition, especially in the state capitol right now, that when you have the kind of majorities that Republicans have, have amassed in the state legislature, it makes governance very difficult uh, in many instances. And having a counterbalance there, even, even if it's a, a minority Democratic Party, but a minority Democratic Party that has more legislative power than it currently has, uh, I think would ultimately help Republicans in their you know, uh, task right now that the state of the people of Oklahoma have given them of governing the state. Um, 
But as it is, we're going to see, you know, continued dominance of Republicans in these congressional districts. And there's just really no way around that. And, you know, when you think about it, I mean, if we were talking flashback 1980s, 1970s, the very Mm -hmm. argument that you just made, Ryan, would be what would be made on the opposite side of uh, of the uh, aisle in terms of when Democrats dominated, had total control, had the entire federal delegation, had dominance at the uh, legislature overwhelmingly. So it's not it's not as much about Democrats and Republicans and the brand uh, of who's getting elected just because of party. It's again, it's local. I mean, these folks have to come back home. They have to you've been on the ballot. You've been in a House race. You know that you have to you have to make your uh, case to the voters that you should continue to work for them at the state capitol and be their and be their voice and their representative. So uh, the notion that somehow all of these other things just mire it up and make it unfair or somehow don't give us the right candidates or give us enough competition, everyone has the opportunity to file for office. I mean, they they follow the follow the guidelines. They can file for office and they can and they can um, have that opportunity to stand for election. And the fact that fewer and fewer people are doing it may be a reflection of a lot of things in the culture more than it is the uh, the balance of who's who has more Republicans or Democrats uh, in their district. But, you know, I, I like to think that the, the and I'm not defending that old system at all. Uh, again, I think that the, the two party model uh, that we have right now is is just a broken model, uh, both at the, the state level and at, at the national level. But, you know, can we do something about it at the national level? I, I don't think so. Uh, but I do think that at the state level, we are laboratories of democracy, uh, and we do have an opportunity to, to do something like that. And I, but even, even then, I know everybody has the opportunity, and I like to think that the I still love the people in, in my old house district. I like to think that you know they they you know still might kind of like me, but I've got a uh, I've got a D next to my name, and if I if it were an open seat and I moved back to Seminole and, and ran for office, even with five generations of uh, family and experience and and network and ties and friendship, um, I don't think I could make it. Out, I couldn't make it out of a general election, and so you know the idea of of running to lose to me, and I think a lot of uh, you know candidates that might have something to offer just doesn't sound all that appealing. And so um, I, I do think that, again, the, the answer isn't to create an independent redistricting commission. To me, the, the answer is to create a new way of electing folks that better represents the, the actual face of Oklahoma. After recent mass shootings in Tulsa, state Democrats are calling on a special session to include the topic of gun control as Oklahoma has some of the most lax restrictions in the country. Meanwhile, Congressman Tom Cole is calling a package of gun bills that has been voted on in the House as deeply misguided. Ryan, where do you think this argument is heading? Well, I, I doubt that it's heading anywhere. Uh, I think, you know, Congress is, uh, they've done what they're going to do. They've passed the bills out of the House. I don't, I doubt that there's going to be any sort of consideration of the legislation in the Senate, even though what they're talking about is, is pretty basic stuff. I mean, I think raising the age from 18 to 21, um, you know, often, oftentimes we get into these conversations of, well, would these particular reforms have changed the outcome of any of these uh, tragedies that we've seen uh, in you know the last two decades uh, of increasing numbers of mass shootings in, in the United States? Um, you know, if if the age was 21 instead of 18 to buy an AR-15, I think that that changes the outcome in a lot of these things. If there's a waiting period, I think it may have changed the outcome in Tulsa. Uh, you know, I, the the gentleman there that that killed himself and then killed all of those folks uh, in the the clinic at St. Francis. Uh, you know, I hesitate to call him a gentleman, but um, the, the guy, uh, he, 
he bought that from what I understand, three hours before the shooting. Uh, he, he, he acquired that AR-15 three hours before the shooting. A waiting period uh, may have helped in that situation. And you know, I think that the problem is, is that too many Republicans uh, feel that they, are, um, they, they can't even begin to have a conversation that talks about nuance. Um, you know, when we talk about things like red flag laws, there are obvious concerns about red flag laws, uh, due process concerns. Well, let's have a conversation about that. Are, are there safeguards that we can put in place that would protect people from frivolous or, or uh, uh, malintentioned reports uh, that would have your guns seized or your ability to buy guns uh, stopped temporarily? Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't even have those conversations uh, I think in, in large part because Republicans, even Republicans that are inclined to have those conversations, feel like they can't even say that out loud. Because if they even indicate out loud that they're opening themselves up to a conversation, um, they you know, feel like they're going to be attacked by uh, the Second Amendment purist. Um, which you know, the Second Amendment purists need to remember that that you know, well-regulated part of the the Second Amendment. And the Supreme Court, even though they have reaffirmed the individual right. Uh, that the Second Amendment grants to individuals to, to own guns, um, they they also have not really curtailed a lot of regulation. On the on the side of the Democrats, I think that the Democrats need to recognize that the political reality is a lot of Oklahomans like guns, a lot of Oklahomans own guns. Most of those Oklahomans that like guns and own guns wouldn't ever do anything violent with a gun. And you know they they've got to figure out how to talk about guns in a way that respects uh, the fact that. Oklahomans have uh, an issue with guns. They like them. And uh, if you if you can't talk about it in that way um, and talk to them in a way that most gun owners, you know, as, as a gun owner myself, like I want restrictions. I want regulations out there. I think there needs to be training requirements. We shouldn't have permitless carry. Um, you know, the, the idea that we can just put more guns into the situation, if there had been more guns in the lobby in St. Francis. Well, if we had more guns there but no training, I don't know that it wouldn't have been more dangerous than the, the active shooter situation. So... In any event, I, I'm, uh, I'm increasingly discouraged about our ability to, to have real progress uh, on this you know, very pressing issue. Neva. Well, and I think you're right, Ryan. I mean, the, the, the vote this week in Congress and the House, I mean, on Wednesday, it came down to 223 to 204, I believe it was. And, and basically, you had, uh, you had two Democrats that crossed over on the Republican side and five Republicans crossed over to the Democrat side. But basically, the takeaway is, I mean, the bill was my way or the highway. And until we get, until we get, uh, a, get to a point where there can be more of a conversation, then you're not going to get anyone to just tee it up and say that there's going to be some wholesale assault on the Second Amendment. Then mm-hmm. gun owners are certainly going to, uh, across America, not just in Oklahoma, going to reject that idea. So, you know, when you start talking bans and you start talking restrictions and you start talking all of these things that uh, that came up, even in that particular bill, I mean, establishing, you know, a, a, a federal offense for uh, the transfer possession of of the large capacity magazines, talking about codifying the uh, the the current ban on bump stocks and amending the definition on uh, uh, firearms to include gun kits. I mean, you know, that it was a very wide ranging, comprehensive piece of legislation that was a non-starter. I mean, in terms of uh, Republicans, and certainly, I think if you were to talk to folks here in Oklahoma, they would uh, they would just reject that out of hand. Now, do we have some problems? Do we have some issues? Yes, uh, but just to make it uh, make it a situation where everyone is intractable in their point of view, 
it is going to be a long haul to try to get people to the table. And I think it's because we've had a lot of bad actors who have really exploited these situations rather than try to use it as an opportunity to have a more reasonable dialogue. And and if anything can come out of uh, these horrific uh, tragedies that have occurred recently, hopefully it will be at the local level where people can start to talk among themselves and have a more civilized conversation than having uh, uh, than having the conversation begin and all of a sudden everyone wanting to you know throw the first punch i mean it's not helpful and uh, and and i think the other thing is to dismiss the mental health component to uh, this overall conversation uh, which some have tried to do and and then they try to talk about uh, that well the united states when you look at our country a developed country like uh, America versus these other countries and how out of, you know, how the numbers are so vastly different in terms of uh, uh, of these uh, killings and the statistics they, they want to point to, it's apples and oranges. I mean, we need to get back to a basic conversation of how we fix it here, local, and and from a wider perspective across the country so that, uh, so that this just doesn't become a continued just hot button issue that, uh, that that voters kind of get thrown into the conversation during the campaign season, and then it goes away largely until the next campaign comes around. Well, one of the things that that everybody should be able to agree about is enforcing existing gun laws. Um, you know, I, there was a report that the ATF was letting. Uh, you know, they they did this big uh, survey in the city of Chicago that you know I think leads the nation in gun violence. Uh, and they found that the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, whenever they're investigating these gun shops that were not following the rules and who they sold guns to, they let them off easy. Um, you know, there need you know if we have these rules that are on the books right now, these laws that are on the books right now, we need to be enforcing them. I mean, I think unfortunately, whenever we talk about policing, uh, you know, gun possession and gun ownership. Oftentimes that falls into a lot of the same problems that we have with policing issues already uh, and the use of prosecutorial discretion that often, you know, those those uh, that often impacts uh, you know, lower income communities that have less access to, to legal protection to begin with. But that said, we, we've got to. And I think that that's there is a kind of this interesting um, conversation that's happening within the progressive uh, world uh, around gun control because you have some things that are coming into you know, at odds with one another. You want red flag laws to be able to intervene whenever somebody uh, you know may be, be a danger to themselves or others, but then you have due process concerns that progressives and liberals hold you know very sacrosanct and and for for good reason. Um, and whenever you talk about enforcement and more prosecution of, of gun laws that are currently on the books, you run into the, uh, the, the progressives uh, concerned about over-incarceration and you know, uh, you know, discriminatory prosecution and, and policing. Um, I don't say that to say that those are intractable problems that we can't ever get around, but that's kind of this conversation that even before we get to the part where Republicans and Democrats are coming to an agreement, I think, you know, Democrats themselves, you know, much like Republicans, you've got some sensible Republicans that'll say, you know, we need some reforms and others that say we just need to arm everybody to the teeth. Progressives are having these conversations themselves about where can we go without violating civil rights and civil liberties. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org.